Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 6, verse 11. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 6, verse 11. Last time, we began to look at the life and death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. We saw that Stephen was challenged by some men from a synagogue. When Stephen spoke the truth in response to them, they could not resist it. Let's see what happens next as we resume our study in Acts chapter 6, verse 11. When these men could not answer Stephen, they resorted to tactics often employed by people bested in an argument. When you cannot argue someone, usually you try to outshout them, and then when you can't silence them, then you try other tactics, and that's what they're going to do here. In verse 11, it says, Then they secretly induced men. The word induced there, the Greek word, hupabalo, means that they suborned men. In other words, they bribed men to say what they were going to say. So the verse really reads, Then they secretly bribed men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, it's interesting that they put Moses first here, making him more important than God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him. Now, it's interesting. It says that they stirred up the scribes. These men were the ones who were the experts in the Scripture, and these were the ones who were usually Pharisees. Whereas Peter and John's last trial in chapter 4, Gamaliel, a Pharisee, stood up to defend them, this time the Pharisees are against Stephen the Christian. Interesting word where it says they stirred up, that's the same word we get the word volcano for. They really shook these people up. And interestingly, this was the first time that the people themselves were aroused against the disciples. And so they came upon him, they seized him, and the word seized there means violence. And the picture is they just grabbed him. They seized him with violence, and they literally dragged him into the court. Because it says, and they brought him to the council, that is the council, that is the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. Verse 13, they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. That is, they're speaking of the temple. Now, the Jews had always taught that God dwelt in a temple. The temple was the very center of his presence. Stephen was preaching that God dwelled in the hearts and the lives of people, you see, not just in the temple. The hearts of God's people were now the very special place where God's presence dwelt. Now, God does fill the temple in the sense that he fills the whole earth with his presence. But you see, now... Jesus Christ has made it possible for God to fill the hearts of men and women with the presence of his spirit, and his presence is permanent. You see, the believer's body, when he accepts Jesus Christ, his body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, the Apostle Paul would later say, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? So verse 13 says, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. Speaking here of the law of Moses. Now, Stephen was preaching that Christ fulfills the law. God's law is not destroyed. 
counterwise, it is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is now the ideal, you see. Christ is the pattern, the standard which we are to follow. The law is not erased, it's not annulled. The law is now found embraced in the life of Jesus Christ. Man's standard, you see, is no longer just commandments and prohibitions, no longer just writing in words, but man's standard is now the life of God himself, the embodiment of love and liberty and freedom. So Stephen's accused of three things, blasphemy against God, blasphemy against the temple structure itself, and blasphemy against the law of Moses. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now there was a misconception. Something that Jesus said caused this misconception and these false witnesses bring it out. Early on in Jesus' ministry, when he was in the temple, he overturned the tables. In fact, he did that twice, once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. You see, they had made God's house, which was to be a house of prayer. They had turned it into a den of thieves, and they were ripping off the people. So when Jesus overturned the tables, he caused a real ruckus. And they came to him, and they said, by what authority do you do these things? I mean, who gave you this authority? Show us the sign, give us the sign. And Jesus said this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now what Jesus said was this, if you destroy this temple, see, not I'm going to come here tonight with a club and destroy this temple, but if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. John tells us what he was referring to. He was referring to the temple of his body, not the temple structure of stone. So there was a misinterpretation, and this same accusation was brought against Jesus at his trial before Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin. They pointed the finger at Jesus and they said, he said he was going to destroy the temple. I mean, he never said anything like that. These are false witnesses. Verse 15, and all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, addressing his students concerning ministry. This is what he said. Men, when you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a grin on your lips. When you teach about hell, your normal face will do fine. <laughs> As the false accusations and the lies and the anger preceded the rocks that would soon follow, Stephen's face reflected not hatred and not horror, but heaven. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him. It means they couldn't take their eyes off of him. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't. And they saw his face as the face of an angel. Now that's really an interesting idea, considering that many that were there in the Sanhedrin, all of the Sadducees, didn't even believe in angels. Now the words face of an angel refers to some kind of a splendor, a glow, a shining radiance, some glory that was present. Apparently God gave Stephen some special glory of himself, presence of himself. Now what's great about this is that they accused him of being against Moses. Remember Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai? What happened to his face? It was a glow, wasn't it? And the glow of Moses was the testimony that God had spoken to him. And Aaron, everybody saw it. They were saying, look, Mo is glowing. You know, it's, it's glowing Mo. 
and they even put a veil on him to cover his face so that the children of Israel would not see the glow departing. So these men were all familiar with this. The one they are now accusing of not standing up for Moses, the law of Moses, blaspheming it, is himself glowing just like Moses. It should have been a tip-off that God was also approving Stephen. Now, on Stephen's face was not that mild, soft, angelic look that we see in so many of the paintings today, nor was it a look of stern judgment and wrath. Instead, his face reflected the perfect peace and confidence of one who knows and trusts his God. All of this is just further evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's life. And it's the same with us. We can expect this Spirit's help always in time of trouble. When you stand up to do what's right, you will not be alone. God will be right there with you. Peter would later write this. We read about it earlier in our scripture reading, 1 Peter 4:14. He said, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Stephen was blessed because the spirit of glory and of God was resting upon him. And may God help each of you to always stand for Jesus, knowing that you also will be blessed with the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. And may your life and your lifestyle, just may your whole life glow like the face of Stephen, reflecting the perfect peace and the confidence of one who knows and trusts in God. And may you in that day hear the voice of your Lord say these words, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Alexander the Great ascended to the throne when he was 20 years of age, and he conquered the known world when he was 33. Julius Caesar, at a young age, captured 800 cities, conquered 300 nations, defeated 3 million men, became a great orator and one of the greatest statesmen known. George Washington was appointed adjutant general at 19, was sent at 21 years of age as an ambassador to the French, and won his first battle as a colonel at age 22. Lafayette was made general of the whole French army at the age of 20. Galileo was but 18 years old when he saw the principle of the pendulum in the swinging lamp in the cathedral at Pisa. Martin Luther was 29 when he nailed his famous thesis to the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg. Shakespeare wrote masterpieces when he was but 36 years of age. Decisions that impact and influence the rest of our life are most often made at an early age. We know from all of the crusades that Billy Graham has ministered in all over the years, the research that comes from those years show that most decisions for Christ are made at a very young age. Paul one time wrote to Timothy and he said to him, let no one despise your youth. So Timothy must have been young or that wouldn't make any sense at all. He was a young man being groomed for the ministry. And it has been said that Christianity began as a youth movement young people being turned on for the Lord. 
and most scholars believe that Stephen was a young man when he was serving the church and when he was martyred at the end of Acts chapter 7, and that as a young man he made a dramatic influence on another young man by the name of Saul. And it must be remembered at this point that Saul of Tarsus was not an aged rabbi, but he was someone in his youth. He had been groomed in rabbinical Judaism, and he was a young man because we read in verse 58 of chapter 7, you might want to look down there, verse 58, chapter 7, speaking of Stephen first, and it says, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Here in this chapter are two men who are very powerful, Stephen and Saul, two men very gifted, two men who shaped church history, both young, both influential, but when they met, they were as opposite as day and night. They were enemies when they first met. And the one thing that divided Stephen and Saul in chapter 7 is the cross. The cross that divided them as much as the cross divided the two men who were crucified, one on either side of Jesus on Golgotha some weeks earlier. One believed and one did not believe. Equally close to Christ, one was brought immediately into paradise, the other died without Christ. So here are two young men separated by the cross. But this young rabbi will become converted. He will become the Apostle Paul, and he will write later understanding this. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it's the scripture we have printed in the bulletin this morning. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And at this point, it was the power of God to Stephen, and at the same time, the cross was foolishness to Saul of Tarsus, a young man who will consent to the death of Stephen, but a young man to whom the death of Stephen will have such a dramatic impact that he will no doubt carry it within his heart and mind as he is on the road to Damascus to persecute the early church. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 7, Stephen is on trial before the Jewish elders, the Sanhedrin. And so this is a courtroom scene. This is the Supreme Court of Israel. And as we saw in Acts chapter 6, they have accused him of three areas of blasphemy. They said that he had blasphemed God himself. They said that he had blasphemed the temple in Jerusalem. And they said that he had blasphemed Moses and the law of Moses, seen as one unit. So there was those three things, God, the temple, and Moses and the law of Moses. Now, the stone wall of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem, is all surrounded by a stone wall. And some of the stones at the base of that weigh as much as 670 tons, unbelievably large stones. Well, to get in the city, you have to go through what are called gates. They're not gates like we have in our backyard that you can swing back and forth, but it's a big arched entrance. Every one of them has a name. One of them is named Stephen's Gate in memoriam to Stephen, who was martyred, the first martyr of the church. And it was a real blessing to be able to go through that gate a couple of times last week because we are studying this portion of Scripture. And so Stephen must make a defense now because he is called into account, and the high priest is going to ask him a question in verse 1. And the high priest mentioned here was probably still Caiaphas, who was the man who presided over the trial of Jesus. Verse 1, Then the high priest said, are these things so? Verse 2, and he said, now, 
what he's going to do, first of all, Stephen's going to do, he's going to give a historical retrospection. They loved to hear this. They loved to recite their history and just to go over their history. I mean, they would get together and do this, and it was something they enjoyed doing. But this is not why Stephen is doing this. Stephen is doing this because he is building a brilliant defense for what they have accused him of. So he says, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. So Stephen begins immediately by reminding his accusers that God appeared to his father Abraham, not in the holy city of Jerusalem, not even in the temple of Jerusalem, but in the pagan city of Mesopotamia where the worship centered around a moon goddess. Verse 3, and said to him, that is, he said to Abraham, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Now, throughout this address, Stephen gives to the Sanhedrin, he will be constantly quoting scriptures. Here he's quoting directly from Genesis 12 and verse 1. You see, the man God uses is a man of the word. This is not any kind of a prepared speech by Stephen. The Holy Spirit is pulling things out that have already been planted in his heart. Now, Jesus had promised in John 14, 26, Jesus said this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. But you see, the Holy Spirit can't bring to remembrance what you've never put in your heart or your mind in the first place. Stephen had an incredible handle on the Word, incredible knowledge of the Word of God, because he had studied the Word of God. And Peter tells us that we should always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks us the reason for the hope that lies within us. Why do we believe what we believe? And Stephen does so very, very skillfully. Verse 3, and he said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Now Abraham, as you know, is called the father of the faith, and that was because he was a man of faith. He was a man who trusted God, even when he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know where he was going to end up. He didn't know where he was going. You see, that's faith. Faith is trusting God, even when you don't understand. Now, some of you struggle because you don't understand what is going on. But that's what faith is all about, trusting in God, trusting in the unseen. Verse 4, then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. As Abraham went from Mesopotamia to Haran to Canaan, God was with him all of the time. He was unhindered by the fact that there was no temple. Abraham didn't need the temple to be close to God. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Abraham owned no land. He only owned a promise. Even at the end of his life, the only portion of land that he could actually say that he possessed was the cave of Machpelah that he had purchased to bury his wife. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. He's quoting there from Genesis 15:13. Actually, it is 430 years. Stephen is rounding it off. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. 
and the patriarchs became envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. So we see now that Stephen is beginning to skillfully, carefully, dramatically show that all throughout Israel's history, even as far back as the patriarchs, God had to put up with their rebellion. That even the patriarchs did not receive the one that God chose to be their deliverer, namely Joseph. Joseph was God's pick to go to Egypt, to become prime minister, to deliver the world out of famine. The patriarchs envied him. They wanted to kill him. They tried to kill him, and they rejected him. And notice in verse 13, it says the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. That's when they understood who he was, and there was repentance. Just like Jesus, when he came the first time, John 1.11 says that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But he's going to come a second time. And then the Bible says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And Jesus is much like Joseph, and so Stephen is weaving in the story of Joseph and the rejection of the patriarchs. Verse 14, then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for his sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. As the nation of Israel multiplied and grew, not in Israel, but in Egypt, Pharaoh saw the number grow from 75 to well over two and a half million people. And fearing a rebellion, he sought to reduce their population by ordering the destruction of all of the Jewish baby boys. And so Stephen now is going to shift gears. He's going to talk about Moses because he was accused of being a blasphemer against the law of Moses. And he's going to show that he is in no way against Moses, that in fact they are against Moses. Because Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18 the coming of a prophet like him that he, Stephen, had accepted, but they, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin and the nation, had rejected. So if anybody is against the law of Moses, it's them, not Stephen. Verse 20. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, that is, when he was set out into the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, 
Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So Moses here is the next picture of Jesus, who was favored by God from birth and miraculously preserved in childhood, and who was mighty in words and deeds. Yet when Moses offered deliverance to Israel, he was rejected, and he was rejected with spite, with Israel denying that he had any right to be a ruler and a judge over them. And also notice that Moses is rejected by Israel at his first coming, just like Jesus was. And so the message is plain from Stephen's point of view. He's going to say more clearly, you have rejected Jesus, who was like Moses, yet greater than him, and you deny Jesus has any right to be a ruler and a judge over you. Verse 30, and when 40 years had passed, that is, he's been out in Midian for 40 years, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now this is the constant pattern of Israel's history. The ones that God selected to be the prophets, to be the deliverer, to be the leader, they always rejected. It was always their pattern, and Stephen is showing the pattern even up to the present point. Verse 36, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And so Moses promised that there would come after him another prophet like him and warned that Israel should take special care to listen to him. But just like Israel rejected Moses, so they are rejecting Jesus, who is that prophet that Moses spoke of. Verse 38 this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Stephen has been accused of blaspheming the law, the law of Moses. So you can hear what he's saying here. Stephen is pleading not guilty. He's saying, I affirm that the law was given from Almighty God through the angel to Moses, whom your fathers would not obey. In other words, he's saying, I revere the law. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.